So hi everybody, it's Gerard from the Irish Voice again and we're back with another podcast and I'm delighted to say that this time round we have acclaimed filmmaker Helena Gallagher coming on to talk to us. So hi Helena, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, it's a pleasure to be here. So Helena, we'll just start off like we do with, with every guest and, and just ask you to tell us a bit about yourself um, and your, your kind of background and your family and so on. Okay, so I'm from, um, my name's Helena Gallagher and I'm from a little island off the west coast of Donegal called Arnmore Island. And um, I'm one of seven. Um, and where I was brought up, like where we live in Arnmore, like you open the front door of our house and you're looking out at the Atlantic Ocean. So that was like the backdrop to my childhood, really. I feel, feel really blessed to have been brought up in such a beautiful place. And uh, I come from, my, my father was a fisherman and my both my grandfathers were fishermen um but yeah growing up in Arnmore, the population of the island now is about 500 i think when i grew up it was maybe about 800 but it's dropped quite substantially over the years um but yeah just a beautiful idyllic upbringing like you know days on the beach running around and yeah it was just it, it's so different to, to to kind of city living you know but i uh, lived in Arnmore till i was 12 and at the time the island have a secondary school so we had to leave at 12 years of age to go to boarding school and um which all my siblings had to do my brothers went to one boarding school and um i went to another one i went to milford with my sisters and so that was basically us leaving home at 12 years of age and uh the the convent we went to was run by nuns so that was kind of tough going mm-hmm. went on to college in Derry, but i think growing up in Arnmore because of the beauty of the place and the location of it, you know, it's it's a place that, that can really inspire you if you're a filmmaker or a writer or whatever, you know. Um, and I, that, I think that's where the the creative side comes comes from, for me anyway. So you've mentioned kind of a lot of the, the kind of pluses about island life. Was there any kind of minuses you experienced when you were growing up? Any kind of no, negatives? You're, you're always rushing for a ferry. Taking on or you I do remember when we were about 15 or 16, we wanted to go to, there was a club on the mainland called, I think it was the Dodge over in Gidor, and we wanted to go there, but uh, we weren't allowed to go. But I remember we actually kind of, we sneaked off the island and we boat that we shouldn't have done. Yeah, when you come from an island, you're always rushing for a ferry to get on one or get off one, you know. So in your, your early days of school, you said you're a bit of a rebel, but what sort of things did you like when you were at school? I was into basketball I used to play basketball but I was always like into organizing things I remember like um patients used to come in from St Connell's which was a local psychiatric hospital and we used to make sandwiches for them and take them out dancing and stuff so it was like a kind of day out for them and I remember helping organizing stuff like that and we we organized some events like that back at home on the island and I was always into basketball and I was always somebody, a lady I know at home said to me, I was always asking questions. <laughs> so there you go. I think that's quite funny now that, you know, that I, I do the work I do. But she said, you and I am forever asking questions, you know. Um, but yeah, I was into basketball, into sports. And um, yeah, I was always kind of chatty, maybe a bit too chatty. I got into trouble regularly with the, the teachers and the nuns. <laughs> so when you're talking there about asking questions, there's obviously a, a genesis of that um you know, film, media, interviewing kind of background sort of thing. Um, was it some, was was film and stuff like that something you were interested in? Film and radio interested in from a young age? No, no, it wasn't. It's it's it's, it's weird. But I I um I remember going to the local radio station called Reading the Gaeltachta uh, in Gidor now, um, which is a few miles from the island on the mainland. And we went over there when we when we, when I was about eight or nine. And I remember being in the studio on the reel to reel machines uh, in the background, and we were singing Irish songs because the island that I come from, uh, our fa- first language is is Gaelic. So we went on to this radio station to sing in Irish. And I, I just remember being in the radio station, but I didn't really think anything of it. I remember at the time I was 18, this was the late <laughs> the late 80s, and um, the BBC came over looking for people to, to work, uh, secretaries. And I did it, uh, I completed a dipl- medical secretary's diploma in, in Derry in Northern Ireland. And I was all set to go and work in a ge- general practice with doctors as a secretary. That was, I thought I was gonna end up doing. So the BBC came over recruiting secretaries and, um, you know, they were quite impressed at 18 years of age that I was running festivals at home and helping out with the um, 
the patients from St Connell's and there was other things. I, I was always good at organising things and to be a good producer, you need to be sort of good at that sort of thing, organising things and and being proactive and having a get up and go attitude. And I was always like that. But um, so I got the job straight for, out of college and went straight to London. And it was just by chance I ended up, um, I was living in London eight years and this job came up at BBC Scotland for the production secretary in the music department. And I applied for it. And I remember um, asking them, like, this is 1995. And I remember asking them to send some cassette copies down of the radio programmes because you couldn't listen to it online. And they sent a couple of, of copies down. And I remember the Radio 1 rock show was coming out of Glasgow at the time, presented by John Kavanagh. And there was also a programme called um, Peter Easton was doing Beat Patrol as well. Um, for any of the listeners might remember, Beat Patrol was a brilliant show. And uh, they sent me down a couple of copies of the show. So I was able to listen to it and sort of, you know, give feedback on how, what I thought the programme was like. But I came up to Glasgow for the interview and I was told afterwards there was like 700 people had applied for that job because it was really cool working in the music department. So I don't know how I stood out because I remember I was kind of late coming to the interview. There was confusion over the times. So I kind of breezed in there and anyway, I got the job and I was ecstatic and and you know I was working as a secretary and then uh, I loved Iron Maiden you know I was a really headbanger when I grew up loved Iron Maiden and ACDC and all the rock bands and Iron Maiden were coming into the studio for the Radio 1 show at Queen Margaret Drive where the old BBC was and uh, the boss my boss at the time was and producer was a guy called Stuart Cruikshank who was an amazing producer at BBC Scotland really creative and just a lovely lovely guy and um, I said to him, can I come into the studio tonight? You know, because Iron Maiden's coming in. And he said, no problem. So I went down to the studio and there was a big glass screen and the presenter was next door. And Stuart and the sound the sound engineer was in the, in the main in main area. And the phone rang and it, and it was reception. And they said Iron Maiden's at reception. And I remember Stuart saying to me, oh, can you go down and get Iron Maiden? And I said, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. And he went, why not? And I said, it's Maiden Man. I can't do that. (laughs) And he was like, Kalina, they're all in 10 minutes. He said, they're all in 10 minutes. Go and get them. And I remember walking up the corridor, meeting the band, taking them up to the studio, chatting away to them. And uh, I just loved the the whole way of how the studio and everything came together. And I remember after that night saying to Stuart, you know, I want to do what you do. Will you help me? And basically Stuart Cruikshank became my mentor and like taught me everything I know and I, and I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for him. And God rest him, like he passed away a, a few years ago and I was heartbroken because he really was instrumental in helping me and, and lots of, of other people at BBC Scotland. Um, so yeah, so that's how the I, I sort of owed Stuart Cruikshank into Iron Maiden. So that was that's how it all started, you know. And, and from those like, early days getting into media and things like that is there any one thing that you learned early on that's really kind of stuck with you down through the years i think i was really blessed when i came up to bbc scotland because my two main passions were always like um, music and sport and i was just really lucky to have got really good opportunities at bbc scotland um i was sitting and answering the phones and on and off the ball on a saturday with Stuart and tam and then i progressed to being in the studio working on the live program going out which resulted in me then working on sports scene. And at the same time, I was working on music programs. And I suppose I didn't realize I was always networking, but like coming from Donegal, you just speak to everybody. That's just the way we are. We're a friendly bunch. And so I'd been in the BBC canteen and people would say to me, I'd say hello to people and they go, who's that? And I go, I don't know. I just always say hello to them. <laughs> I do think it's a Donegal thing. I remember going to, to Luton. My auntie lived in Luton when I was 16 and walking up the street and saying hello to people. and. My auntie saying to me, you don't speak to people. And I just thought there was this was like a foreign concept to me because in Ireland and rural Donegal, you speak to everybody whether you know them or not. So I suppose at BBC Scotland, I was just chatting away, saying hi to people. And I didn't realise I was kind of doing all this network and I didn't even know I was doing it. It was just came naturally to me, you know. So that helped me with like getting on in sport. And I went on to do be assistant producer on sports scene for a while on the Saturday night coverage and um, and then doing the music stuff, you know. What would some of the, the early highlights be of, of having worked at the, the BBC? What were some of the, obviously meeting Iron Maiden, so that's probably one of them. <laughs> Iron Maiden, but you know, I was at, at the time as well, there was lots of brilliant music coming out of Scotland, like Biffy Clyro, 
it just started and I remember those lads coming into the studio uh, you know I took them as part of one of the, the gigs we did we took you know Biffy Clyro down to Glen Rothes and we did an outside broadcast from Glen Rothes and like there wasn't even that many people there and we also had the beta band DJs we had uh, John McLean and Steve Mason I think it was there was DJing but like that was like a career highlight working with those artists like Snow Patrol were kicking about Glasgow at the time and it was before they all became massive so you got to know all these people and like the music the music scene was absolutely amazing Silicon Soul had just recorded that right on for the darkness and you know it, it was just a really really excellent scene in Scotland music wise at the time and I felt really bl blessed to be working in, in, in the music department and I was asked like to produce a program called Independent Scotland Um, it was for BBC Radio 1 and I was just looking back at the history of all like the independent record labels in Scotland over the years and that was like a career highlight making that and that was the first documentary I'd made and, and, and that was like not really knowing how to make documentaries but you know I always think, you know, chuck yourself in the deep end. What could possibly go wrong? You just learn. I think you always learn on the job as you're going along, you know. Um, but yeah, it was um, so many wonderful memories at that time when I first started, you know. So in terms of your work, in, in terms of being a producer, a documentary maker, um, what are the kind of characteristics you think you would you need to have when you, you're doing your line of work? Well, I'm always very inquisitive, you know, and... I I think everyone's got a story in them. Everyone's got a story to tell. And it's just, you know, being able to get people to open up and to share their stories. And I think that's something that I'm I'm quite good at, like getting people to feel relaxed and to be able to talk. But, you know, even now when I'm out and about speaking to people, like something will come in, you know, I'll hear somebody share something. And I think, oh, God, that, that could make a really good documentary or, you know. And I, I like to highlight things that is if it's a an injustice or b if it's something that needs to raise awareness you know i i met about eight or nine years ago i met lisa Haig, chris common's wife chris used to play for celtic and i met her at an event um to raise where awareness about stillbirth and miscarriage and i, and I couldn't believe the, the deafening silence around stillbirth and miscarriage and you know as a result of meeting lisa i decided that i wanted to do a program and i was five years trying to take that program to television, but I wouldn't give up on it because you have to actually, the other thing you need is you have to have really clear self-belief because you're constantly getting rejection. So, you know, you have to really believe in an idea and not give up on it. So that idea, which was made and it was called Labour of Love, it was made for BBC Alaba. Um, and my very dear friend, Mary Rogers presented that program and she talked about, you know, she shared her really moving, you know, story about losing her daughter when she was five months pregnant and we went around Scotland and met other amazing mums and dads who talked openly and honestly about something that was probably the hardest thing they will ever have gone through in their lives and I felt really honoured that they opened up and, and, and shared that with us you know but that idea was declined f over five years but I you know went back to broadcasters and I remember saying to BBC Alba I'm going to keep coming back to you till you commission it and Margaret Cameron who's an excellent uh, exec producer and at BBC Alba you know she she sent out the word that you know it was commissioned and that was a really really important documentary and it should it needed to be made and I'm delighted that BBC Alba commissioned it but it was five years getting rejected so you know you have to you have to have real self-belief you have to believe in the story that you're trying to tell and you have to be extremely resilient because you know for if I put in 20 ideas and I get one commission that's a that's that's good you know because you are constantly getting knockbacks and just in terms of that then when you've got an idea what does the process look like to try and get that get that made how does it how does it kind of develop well I, I can, I'll tell you the story of the Glasgow bus which was a tv series I made for uh, TG Care in Ireland which is a uh, the Irish language station. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, uh, in a taxi in Glasgow and I, I was chatting to this taxi driver and he was asking me where I was from and I was telling him I was from Donegal. And he said, oh, aye, there's a bus that goes for the Gorbals or for Clyde Bank to Donegal. And I said, I know that bus because I have been on that bus many a time myself. And um, he said, yes, they used to take coffins back to Ireland in that bus. And I got kind of defensive. I was like, no, they did not. And he said, no, no, they did. Back in the 70s, they used to bring coffins home. So anyway, I paid the taxi man, he dropped me off. And I, I really st stuck in my mind, like coffins on the bus. Like, 
I could just couldn't visualize it. So anyway, I remember phoning my mother and my mother said, no, I don't remember that. And anyway, I phoned a few other people and they said, no, no, they did take coffins back in the bus. I suppose back in the 70s at the height of the troubles, you know, funeral entourages probably wouldn't have went through the north. Plus it would have been really costly. So they used to put the coffins in the middle of the bus or in the back of the bus. So I was really intrigued by this. And then somebody said to me, oh, sure, Packy Boner used that bus when he first went over to for Celtic. I was like, okay, this is growing arms and legs now. And then someone else said, oh yeah, Lorraine McIntosh from Deacon Blue. Her mum was from Gidor and Lorraine used to go home every summer with her mum and then her aunties. So I was like, wow. And, you know, and then it was like, oh yeah, people used to go for the Tatioke and they used to use this bus. So from one trip in a taxi, and I really do wish I knew who the taxi driver was because I give him a reject to say thanks. But, you know, so I started like developing the idea, but it was two years in development. It was pitched to to various broadcasters again and it was declined. And then um, it was taken to two to broadcasters and both of them came back to me. One wanted a half hour program and the other wanted uh, a TV series. So, you know, a TV series was made out of that. But a lot of time was spent on researching who was on the bus, you know, finding the right characters. It's fine if someone gives you a name or oh, your man or your woman used the bus, but you have to get people that are going to come across well on television and are going to speak well. So that's, you know, it's like all about storytellers. And, you know, I was really blessed with the Glasgow bus because we got lots and lots of good storytellers. Like Moira Ruak, she passed away last year. Lovely, lovely woman. She, um, you know, she was in her 80s when, when she came back on the bus again and she shared her experience of like many Irish, like my grandparents, God rest them, you know, traveling over to Scotland to work, work in the Tatty Hoken and the conditions they faced. So that was it was really important to capture that on film as well. So for the future generations to know what it was like for their ancestors, you know. So, yeah, that's how that idea came about. So you just I could meet someone on the street. I could hear something on the TV. I could read something in a magazine and it'll spark something in me of is there more to the story you know because everybody's a story in them yeah um, just just in terms of that you know you've obviously done radio and tv uh, is one more easier to get commissioned than the other is one more easier to get from idea to finished product than the other or is it roughly the same well i haven't done um radio for a little bit now but um i sometimes think radio is harder because you in, in TV, the pictures are there and you're just telling the story, whereas in radio, you have to like um, you have to tell the story, but you have to visualize that story for your listener, you know, so it's, it's especially in terms of making radio documentaries, it's harder to visualize it, you know, so I remember being up on on the Isle of Skye for the music festival and we'd interviewed this DJ and she talked about um, you know, love and coming to sky because of the sound of the sea and the the seagulls and everything so the next morning i'm down at eight o'clock beside the sea grabbing sound effects and like trying to find seagulls so these are the <laughs> levels you have to go to and i remember my sister-in-law saying why are you following seagulls and i was like it's to bring the story to life you have to when you're making radio you have to bring people to that place when they're telling yeah. a story you know um but yeah i mean both of them are equally as hard it all depends on the commission editor if they like it's all about the story whether they like it or not you know but it is you constantly get get ideas declined and I remember at the start because I suppose I'm a bit of a sensitive soul and uh, you know I used to take it really to heart first you know I'm like oh my god they've rejected my ideas whereas now you just you just toughen up you have to in this industry be tough and, and uh, you know if I get if I get one rejected now that's cool but if I really believe in it I'll keep pitching it again and again till I get it commissioned it was the same with like the Glasgow bus it was two years it was declined twice but um, I persevered. Packy Boner said, I'm like a dog with a bone. I don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's high praise, I guess, from Packy. I know, that's what I thought. <laughs> I know, that's what I thought. See, in the whole time that you were kind of living in Glasgow, uh, was was there, did, were you missing Ireland? Did you miss anything from Ireland at the time? Or were you quite you know, settled? I loved Glasgow. I was in Glasgow 22 years and like I made some amazing friends and like I was really blessed with the work I did because I was working in the music industry. Like I got to go to gigs, I got paid to go to gigs, you know, and I got to know lots of the bands and the promoters and like the, I felt like the Glasgow music community really welcomed me and like, you know, especially the Soma, crowded Soma records and the slam DJs I'm quite friendly with all of them and I was kind of felt part of the Soma family for a long time and 
you know, those the early days of going to Glasgow was amazing. Going to tea in the park and like working backstage, and it was just a real buzz, you know. And and people would cut out off their right arm to get do some of the things that I've done and the bands I've met and you know doing the interviews. I remember interviewing Kings of Leon, and I was like, this is a pinch me moment. It's Kings of Leon sitting in front of me, you know. But yeah, I I mean, but when you're an immigrant there's always part of your heart wants to be at home, even though, you know, I'd set up a life for myself in Glasgow and I didn't, I love Glasgow and I still do love Glasgow, but there's always, you know, your heart, your your heart's always, part of your heart's always at home, you know? And I remember Mary Rue, the lady in the Glasgow bus, she, she spent many years like me in Glasgow and she said, it's, she said, it's a shame you, you can't have two hearts and leave, you know, and split it or whatever, you know? But yeah, there was always a yearning for me to go home. Um, you know, but and I suppose when COVID came in, that was the time I hadn't intended to move back when I did. But I've just really relocated my base. I'll still be coming back to Scotland, you know, to, to do filming and stuff. But um, yeah, I was always I always missed home, you know, and I think when you come from an island and you're surrounded by water, you miss that, you know, so I'd regularly go down the Clyde for a walk as I lived over in the West End. So, you know, as long as I got down, I saw the water every couple of days I was okay and I used to cycle over to Balak, you know. Um but when you're an island girl you always go want to go back to your island roots. It's just in you, you know. As they say you can take the girl out of the island, but you can't take the island out of the girl. So you eventually decided to set up your own company. Now that that that's sometimes quite a daunting prospect. Were you daunted by it yourself? Well, I was at, I'd been at the BBC for 17 years and then in 2008, there was lots of changes and lots of redundancies made. And sadly, I ended up on the redundancy list. And at the time, I was absolutely devastated, you know, and because um, I worked at the BBC from when I left college. But, you know, now on reflection, it was a blessing because, you know, a lot of other people were going freelance. But I had always said, I remember, you know, when you leave the BBC there, you know, provided lots of training courses and stuff and I remember this guy who was doing this training course about doing a good CV and 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 he'd asked what are you going to do and I said I'm setting up my own company and he was very he said you're very sure about that and I said I sure am sure about it because that's what I'm going to do so I, I you know I didn't want to be doing freelance jobs going and working here for three months and there for three months I didn't want to do that you know I wanted to have more control over my life um you know so yeah, so in 2008, I set up HG Productions and, you know, at the start, I was mostly doing radio work and then I moved into promote uh, corporate films and then um, TV documentaries. But one of the first documentaries I made, well, just before I left the BBC, I got a commission to make, which was a brilliant one. It was called Mon the Biff. And I got to, to go out to LA with Biffy Clyro. I mean, got to go and spend like a few days in the studio with Biffy in LA and, and Biffy in New York. And at the time, it was for the fifth album, Only Revolutions. And like, I knew Biffy were going to be massive. You know, and I'd say to people, I'm away to LA with Biffy Clyro. And they went, I've never heard of them. And I, I remember going, but you will, because they'll be selling out stadiums. I just knew they were going to be massive. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are. And like, so that for me was just, that was one of the last big gigs I left before the BBC did, before I left the BBC. And that was an idea that I could, you know, pitch to the BBC myself, you know. Um, so yeah, so that was amazing doing that one. And then I left the BBC and um, I, there was a documentary that I would wanted to do for a long time. It was a personal story to me. My father was a fisherman and he was lost at sea when I was four years of age. And that was obviously a very traumatic time for for our family, and um, but we never really talked about it. And I, there was two fishing tragedies in Donegal at the time in nineteen seventy five and nineteen seventy six, and I suppose the the heartache for a lot of people they just didn't talk about it back then. People didn't talk about stuff when people died, really. So it was always on the back of my mind and and to do something about it. So I um i I met this guy from rte and i phoned him up and and well someone had given me his number and i phoned him up and i said i'm doing this program about the boat my father was lost on and i i kind of wanted rte to back it so i knew that you know i wanted the government to give me the release the findings as to what happened to the boat so i knew if i had a broadcaster like rte Mm -hmm. it would kind of put pressure on them so i said to him you know are you going to uh you know i i want to make this program and i told him the story and he was really 
quite intrigued by the story and and I said, listen, it's like this here. Do you want it or not? Because if you're not taking it, I'm taking it somewhere else, but I'm making it. <laughs> he said to me, couldn't believe the gumption of you. Like you were like, I'm making it. So if you want it, you can take it now or else forget it. It's going somewhere else. And you know, you were saying that at the Christmas party a few weeks later, or a few months later. And, and he said there and then, yeah, I'm going to take it. So I made that documentary and it's probably one of the hardest documentaries I've ever made because I had to, you know, interview my mom, you know, about what happened because she was left wooded with seven children under seven you know it was horrific for her and uh, my little brothers were born they were twins they were born four months after my dad had died so mum had five children under seven and a twins like two months after my father was lost and you know she's done an amazing job bringing us all up on her own so you know when I was interviewing her I don't really remember the time I was four but you know she said she took us all into the room to tell us dad was never coming home and stuff like that and that was really it was hard for her to tell me that and it was hard for me to hear it you know and I interviewed a lot of my dad's friends and they were sort of you know explaining to me his type of personality and he was great crack and everybody says I'm very like him and you know that really warms my heart to hear that and you know so I made that program and, and it won a, a a gold international award in New York so for something that was really painful to make it was just it was really nice to get that recognition at the international level for it too, you know, so I was kind of blown away. I felt like my, ga- my dad was kind of guiding me through the whole process, you know, but... Um, but did you find that, like, challenging or was there an element of kind of catharsis in it as maybe making it as well? Yeah, I think it really healed my heart to make it. There was a lot of tears in the making of it, you know, and, you know, when I sat down with some of my dad's friends, like, grown men, you know, they were crying and I was crying, you know, and... You know, I met another girl whose dad was a skipper of the boat and I'd never met her before. We're, we're now like good friends. We see each other and, and uh, you know, we just sat and we cried because we could understand what it's like. Nobody else can understand unless you've lost a parent to see, to see you know. So we we understood what it was like and we shared that, you know. So that, that was, it healed my heart a lot making the program, 100% healed my heart. And I was able to get a good... Um, get a good description of what my father was like and everybody and it, it was really nice for me for people when I hear people would say Jesus you're so like him you know he's pure devil <laughs> and I loved hearing that you know so and you know mum was throwing something out she'd put it out in the garage in the house and she was going to get rid of it and I went out and it was like a reel-to-reel machine and I was like where did that come from and my dad used to, you know, he was a fisherman, but he had this reel to reel and he used to record the men singing in the pubs and do interviews. Wow. And I, like, I didn't know that. So, you know, for me then to end up with a career starting off in radio, I was like, oh my God, that was there. My dad was doing that, but not for radio, but like he was a fisherman, but he was also doing that in his spare time, you know? So I've got those reels. I must get them transferred over. But, uh Yes, yeah, so no, it really definitely healed my heart to make it, you know. Just on that point as well, like a lot of your work does touch on really kind of sensitive subjects, you know, depression, illness, loss. Um, is that something you try and look to tackle? And how do you kind of successfully handle, you know, sensitive subjects? I think, you know, with losing my dad when I was so young, I'm very conscious of how to speak to people and especially if they've had a loss. Um, and I remember like, a documentary was made about the boat that my father was lost on and at the end of the program they had um the memorial cards floating in the sea and i thought that was the most insensitive thing ever because my dad's body was never found and it was as a result of that as well i decided to make the radio documentary i was making but the person making that you know didn't think about the families you know and i always swore that in any program i made or i make you know, the people that are opening up about their stories, you have to be, it's just a given that you have to be really, you know, I have a huge duty of care to them, especially with the programme Labour of Love, you know, um, all the ladies and, and the mums and dads I spoke to, like we're still in touch now, we will always be in touch because of the stories they shared shared with me, you know, we're all friends on Facebook and, you know, hopefully when I get back to Glasgow, we will get a night out, which we all said we were going to, you know, um, we, I met up with them all at the screening at BBC Scotland, but that programme was really moving and, and you know, 
for those people to open up to me. I, I you know I'm not a type of producer. I get the interview, see you later, and you never hear from me again. It's just not the way I roll, you know. And I think when you're doing programs that are super sensitive, you have to you have to be like that. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, they're not a number. They're sharing something that's really important in their lives and you have to be really sensitive with that the same with like depression yeah I did the program like with Neil Lennon and, and Steve Mason and both of them are amazing and you know when they talked openly and honestly and the, I remember when like the, the program I did for Radio 1 with Neil and Steve and who talked so openly about the depression we had over 250 emails came in saying that program was helping them and I said if one we get one if we help one person we're doing we're doing it right same with Labour Love Mary Rogers who presented the program you know she she was inundated with emails from people saying you've really helped me but you know for me as well you know whenever labor love is repeated i phone all the contributors before i phone them after are they okay how are they feeling because you know i have that duty of care to them as a producer and you know if you're a good producer you should be doing that you know yeah a lot of your work as well it, uh, um it, it's safe to say that a lot of your kind of passion seem reflected in it you know music Island life, culture, identity, diaspora. Is that is would that be safe? Would that be uh, safe to say? Yeah, I, yeah. I, island life, like they I mean at the moment. The most recent thing I've done is not a documentary, it's a little promo film for the islands off Ireland. So I, I, I get paid to travel through all the islands down the west coast of Ireland, which is amazing. It was amazing. I did it over the summer months, but stuff to do with islands is always an interest to me and i've traveled to think every island off scotland you know shetland orkney um lewis uh, barra is my favorite mm -hmm. so sorry to any of the people that aren't from barra but like i just absolutely love the island of barra yeah stories from the islands and stories that um that make a difference and that are raising awareness are really important to me you know and yeah, like the Glasgow bus, that was a big thing about the Donegal and the, the Scottish-Irish connection. I think it's important to share stories like that as well, you know. When you're talking earlier on about meeting famous names and working with famous people, was that difficult at first? Were you maybe a bit kind of awestruck? Because that, that happens with a lot of people. Sometimes if they meet their, their heroes and then they're working with them or, or meeting someone who's famous, it's it can be quite challenging. No, I think as well, see when you're brought up in Donegal, it's like, see when you go home, it's like you're an island girl and that's get over yourself if you, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you got to get on every guest list in Glasgow when you're home, you'll just queue like everybody else, you know, and I think, I remember the first band I met after Iron Maiden was Cast, do you remember the band Cast, mm -hmm. and they were playing yeah. a big gig on Loch Lomond with Oasis, and I remember they came into the studio and I was maybe a wee bit nervous. I had to go down and pick them up. And I remember the guy was going, all right. He was liver puddling, all right. And uh, I think his name was John, right? And he and I went, hi, I'm Helena. And he was like, are you that great Greek Greek goddess or whatever? And I just looked at him and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> I was like, hello, <laughs> you know? But, and, and I remember we walked up to the studio and NME journalists was following them and they actually wrote this in the NME that I kind of cut them off, you know, because I was like, and because I remember going out to work the next day and they went, you got to mention in the NME. I was like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I say? But I think when you're from an island, you know, growing up here, it's like you don't do that starstruck thing. Do you know what I mean? I've worked with lots of big bands over the years and at the end of the day, there are no better than me or you you know they just happen to be hugely talented so I don't treat them any differently I'm not into like drama 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 I'm not into any of that at all you know to me they're they're musicians right and like I treat them the way that I would expect to be treated like I don't run around and giving them this that and the other thing it's just you know it's so unnecessary you know same with footballers you know they're just footballers they're they're no better than you or I, but they just get paid way too much money, you know. And and the same with musicians. So I think I've always been that way. I've never really been starstruck. It hasn't been my thing. And like when I think about all the bands I've met over the years, it's it's been amazing. But I've always kept it at really professional, professional throughout, you know. And but I've never been kind of oh my god, I'm so awestruck. Apart from Iron Maiden, of course. And <laughs> I went on to work with. I did go on to work with Bruce Dickinson afterwards. Um. We did a radio show for BBC6 Music with Vic Galloway, just a one-off. But, you know, they're just people, you know. 
But I, I learned a lot from Stuart Cruikshank, you know, the, the, who was my mentor, you know, and uh, yeah, he, he wouldn't have been getting starstruck by any of them either, you know, they're just people. I think the only ones I'd maybe struggle with are Stone Roses, but I think I'd be fine with everybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what have been the highlights then since you started uh, your own production company? Would it be kind of doing those, um, you know, Labour of Love and, and uh, Glasgow Bus and things? Labour of Love, Glasgow Bus. The Biffy Clyro documentary was amazing. Searching for answers and, and one in the gold in New York was like being out in Manhattan all dressed up and, and getting a big gong was like, and New York was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Labour of Love, yeah, that was a career highlight, the Glasgow Bus. Obviously the most recent one, how could I forget to mention that? God Save the Queen with Scotland's iconic female musicians. That was a huge career highlight for me, interviewing Annie Lennox, Eddie Reader, Lorraine McIntosh, Katie Tunstall, Amy MacDonald, uh, a new artist like Kitty and B. Charlotte, and also Emma Pollock from the Delgados. I mean, that was amazing doing that programme. Um, and to see what women are up against in the music industry, but it's not just in the music industry, it's in every industry. I find that in this day and age as well, like, you know. Yeah, I was going to... I was I was going to ask you that earlier on. Um, actually, did you think that did you find it difficult um, coming into a kind of media environment at first? Because it's quite it's, historically it's been quite a male dominated environment, and that's obviously not always uh, helped it really in the past. Yeah, no, I I was very lucky at BBC Scotland because when I went to work on sports scene, like the guy uh, Brendan O'Hara, who was who's um, the MP, Brendan was working in sport, and he was. You know really supportive and i remember i got to do my first edit uh, you know it was the highlights of one of the games and and it was great because it was a good mixture of men and women you know so that was really that was encouraged you know but i i do find within the industry it's still a merry you know you know they say we're we're kind of bossy or we're this or that that's because men don't listen and you have to be bossy and it really infuriates me sometimes you know and you know, there's been times where I felt like packing it all in because it has been difficult. There, I'm not going to say it hasn't gone without its challenges along the way. It has. There's been many challenge, challenges I've faced. But, you know, I just think of my nieces coming after me. If they want a career in this industry, if I was to give it up, what sort of messages that am I putting out? You know, so you have to just be strong and be firm. And I don't have a problem doing that now, you know, whereas I might have been did, did at the start, you know. Um, but it's like a lot of industries and... You know, for a woman, yeah, you do have to work harder without a shadow of a doubt. It just Hopefully that will spark a change. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, just in terms of when you were talking about God Save the, the Queen there, uh, did you feel as well that maybe the, the music industry, there's not enough of, of a light shone in, in, in female musicians and, and artists? No, like, I mean, the, the, the stories that came up time and time again is like they're not supported in radio play, they're not supported in festival lineups. You know, it's, it's an absolute joke. You know, so more needs to be done about that. Even here in Ireland, the the percentage of radio plays plays that female artists are getting is really, really poor, you know, in comparison to the male. So like it's gotta change. You know, some it has to change. Yeah. But um yeah, it's still the percentage is still quite low. Um but it, it was um like hearing the stories for some of those ladies, like shocking really. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've been, know. you know, I'm being criticised about you know how they look and and you know I saw a thing recently you know a, a, a broadcaster had commented about you know one of the ladies in Strictly come dancing because they commented on on how she looked. I mean that's just really not acceptable in this day and age. So no. people have to be held accountable as well. You know, there's an Instagram. I need to get the Instagram page and uh, a lady I know set this Instagram page up and it's all about the things that women put up with. It's all about the sexism in television and it is absolutely shocking. Uh, and I keep every week things are posted and, do you know, I just think they should be named and shamed. The, the men that say these things to women in this industry trying to find the link so i can let you know what it is but you know it isn't acceptable and maybe if they are named and shamed they'll stop doing it because it's not acceptable you know but i suppose we've just put up with it you know um i mean i was i was uh, very conscious when i started doing the podcast the first couple of guests i had were male 
So I was very conscious of wanting to kind of redress the balance. So I had Caroline on before your, yourself and then having yourself on. Because um, I, I think it's very important because I think e even within the, the Irish community in Scotland, um, we're, we're blessed with a lot of really fantastic women in, in different areas, whether it's in the, the political side of things or whether it's in Irish dance or Gaelic uh, sports and things like that. So um, I, I guess that's, I'm, I'm kind of like yourself and I, I want to kind of shine a light on the different people that make up our community um, and especially especially the women. And, and all, we've always tried to kind of do that in Irish voice and, and have space for, you know, female writers and contributors and things like that. So long may it continue. Absolutely. And whenever I'm like, when I'm getting, um, putting a programme idea to proposal together, I'm always looking at the balance of male, female. You know, it has to be a fair balance and, and on my shoots as well. If I've got a male cameraman, I'll always have a female sound recordist. Mm -hmm. I won't have, I, I try not to have uh, both male because the balance is not even. Yeah. So, um, well, then the balance is more even in my direction, but that suits me better, you know. Just in terms of um, your work as well, are there any projects that you've really, you, you've, you've spoke about um, taking a long way we get commissioned are there any projects you've just had to shelf you've just had to say i have to let it go and 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 are there any kind of particular reasons for it well there's loads <laughs> i mean i i thought that like a good idea would have been as we went into COVID, is looking at the music industry and and how the music industry had come to standstill at the start of COVID, and like we could have incorporated it into that idea like um you know, the fact that the sub club, you know, had to close its doors and, and you know, they set up that um, GoFundMe page and within like 24 hours, they had all this money. All that stuff would have been brilliant to capture all that in telly. Mm -hmm. And like the music industry is just getting, well, it's slowly getting up and running again. But I think that would have been a really important documentary to cover during COVID, but it was declined. Yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, within the Irish community, a lot of, you know, musicians playing in the bars and stuff like that, and their livelihoods have been kind of taken away from them for, for a while. So it would have been a, a very interesting thing to cover. Um, there's, there's, there's so many ideas that, like, I've pitched and they've been declined. But you, you, as I say, you get used to that and you just, you know. But if I really believe in something, I won't let it go until I get a commissioned. I, I sort of persevere. So you're back home in Ireland. Why did you decide to move home? Was it was it just COVID or was there a kind of longing to be back? I had always intended to come home. Um, and I think COVID really pushed that forward. And, um, you know, it was quite isolating being in Glasgow and with no family and people then who weren't isolating or, or people who weren't where you were when you were allowed to see family, they were seeing their family. So I didn't have any family there. So I found that quite difficult. And, you know, a friend had died cancer during COVID and that was kind of she was only 47 and she was living in Wales and that was the kind of turning point as well and I just thought you know I'm going to make some changes here now and, and um, I just decided that you know what I'm, I'm going to head home and um, I've just really re the thing is I've relocated my base you know I've still got my place in Glasgow and I've still run the business in Glasgow but I'm just running it from here so whereas before I was running it from Glasgow and I'd come home to film whereas I'm home now and, you know, I'll travel back for work. I'll be back and forth to Scotland all the time anyway. And, you know, I'm not living on the island. I'm just on the mainland in a little fishing village called Burdenport. And I'm actually, I'm looking at my window now and I'm looking at Iron Moor. So uh, it's lovely. And I'm do doing um a TV series about Donegal Airport. So there's flights between Donegal and Glasgow and Donegal and Dublin. So I'm doing that over the next year. So I'll be back and forth to Scotland with that anyway, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think with COVID and like, I, if COVID hadn't happened, I probably would have stayed for another maybe 10 years, but you know, it felt like the time was right and it's definitely been the right move for me. I'm really, really happy to be back and, you know, go swimming in the Atlantic every week and you know my brother lives down the road with his kids so um you know we go out in the rib for we some do some island hopping or we go out mm. kayaking and it's just a different way of life you know i'm so close to all these beautiful beaches you know and and i suppose when i came back after about five months and i was having a oh my god what have i done you know <laughs> it was like the weather was horrendous like during the winter and i was thinking what have i done and um my cousin phoned me and she said, let's go for a, do you want to go for a spin in the car? We'll go for a walk. And we drove over to Carrickfin Beach 
And if you've ever been to Carrickfin Beach, it was a Friday evening. It was just beautiful. It was cold. But the sun and the sky and everything, and it was just like, oh my God, this was such the right move. If I had any doubt at that moment, it confirmed to me that it was the right move to come home, you know? Yeah. So, I think if anything good has come out of this, and, and not much has, it's kind of allowed us to maybe recalibrate and um, realise what's important in life and, and, and focus more on family. And that's that seems to come across in, in what you were saying there sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like my mum's in and out on the ferry all the time where I go in home and, you know, it's the different, it's the little things in life. I think when I first went to Scotland, I was like 25, 26 and, you know, you were in, I was going through that designer stage where everybody goes through. Whereas as you get older, you don't care about stuff like that. Like your health is your wealth. So I just try and like live every day as, as best I can because nothing is guaranteed in this life. You know, it's nothing is given and like your health is your wealth and you know, so I just try and, and live the best life I can. And just, it's the little things for me now, getting out, going for a walk, going for a swim and meeting up with family and friends is, is, is what's important to me, you know. And it's, um no, it's really nice to be back home. And like, if I come back and I've settled during COVID and, you know, when things open up properly, it's, you know, it's going to be fab, fab. But, you know, as I say, I'll be back and forth to Scotland, you know. Uh, you've kind of touched upon this probably before. Um but and, and media can be quite an all-consuming uh, profession, um, working within media. Uh, what do you like to do with your free time? Well, what do I like to do in my free time? I surf, but very badly. <laughs> um, well, I surf, um, and, and now I haven't been out for a little while, but um, yeah, I surf and uh, just like going for walks and swimming in the sea and kayaking and stuff like that. I'm very outdoorsy. I, I do a lot of cycling. Aragal is on my list of um, mountains to climb. So, um, but yeah, I'm very outdoorsy and, and, you know, I try after God Save the Queen because there was so much social media around that, you know, to promote it. I actually just deactivated Facebook for two months, you know, and it was great. And then when I went back in, people were posting pictures of their dinner and I'm thinking, oh my God, really? <laughs> you know, when you totally take yourself away from it all. Because um, I don't think it's necessarily good, you know. Um, I think we all need a break from it, and I think even with WhatsApp, you're all it's too you're we're all too accessible, you know. So I like to, to you know, a few years ago I took six months out and I went away and I um I managed a lighthouse down in Mayo. I just wanted a break out of telly, so um I just think it's really good to get the balance. And with me running the company now, my own company, my own business, I I have the right balance now. You know, I don't. I don't stretch myself too much with work because I just think life's too short and you know my health's my wealth I'm not going to run myself into the ground working this is no point you know um, yeah. I'm not bothered about being rich I'm just bothered about having a nice life and being healthy and that's more important to me and just living in the day you know it's it's not about big fancy houses or big fancy cars that's not the way I roll but I think that's the thing as you get older too and with age you know it's what you want your 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 wish list of things changes, you know. What about, you know, you spoke about musicians and who would be some of your favourite musicians? You've mentioned Iron Maiden. Who else would you, who else would you go to? Big fan of Snow Patrol. I love the Delgados. Uh, Emma and Paul are just lovely people, you know. And um, I mean, at that time in, in Glasgow, like the scene was just so healthy, like Bill and Sebastian. And, um, and you know, I, I was always a big fan of dance music. So I loved like the Silicon Soul lads and the Slam guys, you know. I was a, a regular at Pressure and at the sub club, you know, and Harry and Dominic, the DJs. And I loved Optimo. I love what they used to do with their music, you know. So I went from like being into heavy metal, then into kind of the dance scene, you know, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people did that kind of transition, you know. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so many special memories of nights in Glasgow, like seeing bands, because there's so many, like there was a 13th Note, King Tuts, and um, there was the one down by the Clyde. What was that? Was that the 13th Note? There's another one. Um, oh, 13th Note's kind of in this old market area. The, um, nice and sleazy, I always quite liked as well. Nice and sleazy, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, just so many, you know. Um, yeah. But bands like the Fratellis as well, I remember when they started off and, and like, they were brilliant, you know. There's just so many good, Franz Ferdinand. I remember seeing Franz Ferdinand playing at Optimo 
and I booked them to come into like the the Monday night show. It was called Air on Radio Scotland, and I remember Joe Wiley claiming to fame to giving like Franz Ferdinand their first ever live music show, and I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> but like they came in and and but like that like Glasgow was so live with music, it was unbelievable, you know. And that's one thing I will miss, you know. But sure, I'm only a flight away. Yeah, yeah. And I, this this might be a bit presumptuous um, just because you're a, a producer and a, a filmmaker and things like that but are there any you know films that stand out for you that are your, your favourite films any any classics that you like oh yeah Point Break mm-hmm. Point Break uh, the surfing film that's and uh, I was absolutely devastated I remember I was teaching in the uh, the Metropolitan College of Commerce in, in, in Glasgow and, and like there was a thing in the paper and it said like Patrick Swayze had died and I was absolutely devastated and I remember saying in front of the students oh my god Patrick Swayze's died and they were like who they didn't obviously have a clue who he was but like uh, he was in Point Break and I just absolutely that's my favourite movie of all times and that's what got me into surfing magic hey, Helena I've taken up enough of your time um, and you've given us uh, more than enough to, go, to be to, to get on with, um, I would just like to point out that you are um, HD Productions can be found via the website www.hdproductions.co.uk and is on various social media outlets. Is there anything that you would like to give a shout out to yourself? Uh, yeah, well, if um, if they wanted the documentary that won the uh, Gold Award in America, it's called Searching for Answers and it's available on the RTE Doc on Ones uh, on their website. So RTE Doc on One and it's called Searching for Answers. Um, if anyone wants to check it out. Fantastic. Okay, okay. Thanks a lot, Helena. Cheers. Thanks for having me.